good to have you all here. Um, we're going to be today shifting out of uh, Revelation. And so if you were here with us for our Revelation series, I hope you were encouraged by it and you were strengthened by it and that uh, you maybe got a different look at, at Revelation that maybe you hadn't seen before. And so, but we're going to be kind of building out of Revelation. And so, oh, I guess we're passing the offering. As this comes around, remember that God loves things that jingles, but he really loves things that folds. <laughs> okay, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> if you're new here, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> if you're new here, please don't feel like you have to, to give. This is something we do as a family to take care of each other. And so it's a total blessing to do that. But while those are going around, we were studying Revelation. One of the things that was a common rhythm through the book of Revelation was this idea of a faithful church that is a witness and a testimony to the world. He kept, we kept hearing this over and over that the thing that marks God's people is that they're these faithful testifiers to who God is. So in other words, it's not just that we survive through this world, it's that we walk through this world as the means to be able to tell people who Jesus is, even in the midst of the most difficult times. Now, if you're anything like me, you just know right now probably more than any time in my life, and maybe it's just because we have the internet, maybe just because we have the television, it just feels like the world is a more dangerous place. Now, I, I know it's not the, the first generation that ever went through this, and you all know that church history is my passion, so I get it that, that the world has always been a dangerous place. But I think over and over again, we just see this, that, that this place to live, that we're part of what we are, it just feels dangerous. And I think when you add to it now all the media that are a part of it, we're just bombarded every day that the world is awful and terrible and, and falling apart and you're gonna, your finances are going to fall apart. An asteroid is going to hit us. The climate is going to change. Even in some ways we hear about superbugs and crime and corruption. It's just this nonstop exposure to all these things that keep hitting us. And after a while you start to realize what I think is just a reality since the fall the world we live in is just a dangerous place. And I would say this right now, it's not a happy place. Now, I think this idea of being a testimony becomes very big, and it's why we're going to do this, this, this little series, and we're going to dive into 1 Peter a little bit to explain this. But I think this, more than any other time, maybe, is a phenomenal opportunity for the church, not to go into survival mode, but actually to be ready to give testimony to the greatness of God, to speak into a world that seems so hopeless with the hope of Jesus Christ. Because again, not only do we see his victory in today's world and in our lives as followers of Jesus, but we know in reading the book of Revelation, and, and maybe you get sick of me saying this, but I don't care, I wanna keep saying it, Jesus wins. We have immense hope. We know how this thing is going to come to a conclusion. And so that's why I just wanted to kind of in the middle of a world that keeps telling us everything is awful, that we are a group of people that live in hope. Now, I think one of the things that, that we also face now as Christians also, and I was thinking about this probably more than, more than any time in my life, to not only be just a member of the human race is difficult, but I think now in the last few years, maybe we had this little reprieve as followers of Jesus in the United States, but it's becoming more and more difficult to be a follower of Jesus. There's all these things that we hold to that we believe God is, has clearly articulated what it means to follow him and know him and be a human. 
And to take those stands for that, suddenly we seem archaic, we seem old school. And in a lot of ways now, even I think in, in, I, the way that I've felt it is, is that Christians even have become the enemy in some ways. So it's not just that the world is hard. Now you add on top of that that the world now views us almost as antiquated, not having answers to this world. But yet I really believe we have the answer. Now, for anyone that thinks somehow that this is something new, that we're, that we're caught, should be caught off guard by it in any kind of a way, I think by the time you get to like John 15, Jesus just promised, look, this is the way it's going to go for followers of Jesus. This is the way it's going to be. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Now, the passage that we're going to dive into today is out of 1 Peter, and it's in, in verse 13. So if you got your Bibles, open there, because I really want you to see this. I want you to feel it, because one of the things I've realized as a pastor is that it is my job to prepare you not for the world I want, but for the world that is. We have to be prepared for this world that we live in, and I think in a beautiful way, 1 Peter captures it as he writes to this group of people that are kind of spread out at this particular time, and he's going to announce to them, no, there is a way to walk through this world where we do declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me just read this passage for you. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, the key there that I want to get to, and we're going to kind of get down to this last point, is this idea of always being ready to give an answer. I believe we are positioned phenomenally now as followers of Jesus Christ to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. That's what we're going to get to today, but we got to, we got to kind of walk through some things in order to find out how do we get to that particular point. Well, if you study 1 Peter, and if you got your Bible, you can just flip over just a few pages to chapter 1, verse 6. And what he's telling them is, look, part of being a follower of Jesus Christ is you are going to be grieved by various trials. You are going to walk through this life, and God has a plan by which now these trials don't become something that hinders you. But in a beautiful way, his argument is, is that these trials that come into our life actually show us that we're actually one of his. It shows the faith that we have. But not only that, it goes on by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 1, that these trials hit us in a pretty powerful way. Internally, it hits us as a church externally as we just struggle and strain in our battle with sin. I mean, as I look across this room, all of us in here, don't we? Every single day we're battling in different ways, not through the world that's out there, but we're battling internally with the sin that we just constantly are plagued by. He says, look, this is something that's impacting the church. When you go on in 2, 13 through 17, he starts to write about government and the way that government seems to be impacting the church, the trial that government brings upon people. You see this idea of masters and their servants. So maybe in our world, it might be bosses and their employees. If you ever wondered whether or not the Bible speaks to this, it does. Just the impact of, of living under a, a master in that kind of way. I think probably the most interesting one is in chapter 3, 1 through 7, where it talks about spouses. There's just conflict in being married. And if you don't believe there is, then you've never been married. Man, when you take two people 
that are struggling and battling with sin and then throw them into a house together to live together, it is going to be combustible. Then you add children into that and everything gets perfect. (laughs) But he says, look, not only that, in 4, 1 through 11, it's just society in general. God's people are always going to be bombarded by things, not just the normal things the world goes through, but these things that bombard us, but we're going to get to it. They're bombarding us for a reason. The way I would say it is it's the norm. In chapter four, he says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is going to happen. Beloved, oops, 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 the button. But rejoice in so far, look at this, as you now share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, there's a connection that Peter's making here that says, look, these things are going to happen to you, but there is a purpose behind what you're going through. Now, in 4, 12 through 13, he's going to start to lay out for us then how it is we start to walk through this. There's two ways. Let me just, if you're taking notes, let me just walk this through. There's two ways you can either walk down this. Either number one, you're going to be surprised by this world. You're going to be disappointed by what's going on. You're going to become frustrated. You're going to become bitter and you're going to become vengeful. That's one way you could go. And he's going to talk about that in in the various aspects of 1 Peter. This is one direction that you could choose to go. Or he's gonna lay out for us another one. You can see this as an opportunity. Now, all of us in here, we have different aspects of our life. Sometimes we're married to difficult people. Sometimes we have difficult jobs. Sometimes we're going through sickness and health. Sometimes we're just going through different things. But here's the thing Peter wants us to grasp is whatever is impacting you right now in your life, it is not an obstacle to hold you back, but something that is placed there as an opportunity that you can take advantage of. Now, some people might say, yeah, but you're not married to my spouse. You don't have my boss. You don't understand what's going on right now in my life. All throughout 1 Peter, we're constantly learning that the trials that hit us are opportunities in a powerful way that God entrusts to us to demonstrate who he is to the world. Now, in this particular case, in 1 Peter 3, 13, he says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So then, okay, Peter, then how do we approach this thing? Well, the first way that he tells us to approach this is to come at it from an angle that is, you know what, regardless of what happens, just do good to people. It's the golden rule. It's what I teach my children. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's, it's common sense. It's an axiom. It's proverbial in some ways. How I want you all to walk through this is, is I want you to come at people in such a way that though you may be, distre- you may be mistreated, you are going to instead be helpful. It's, a, it's kind of a rule of thumb that says, look, generally people don't harm people that are helpful. Generally. Now, throughout history, though, we know that there have been different people that have chosen to take this stance. Martin Luther King Jr., for example. One of the most powerful things that he did as a man of God walking with people through the civil rights movement was not to allow people to become vengeful. In fact, if you read his speeches, he's constantly telling them, don't go down this particular path. Don't go down the path where you're surprised. Don't go down the path that you're frustrated. Don't go down the path that you're bitter and then you become vengeful. Don't go there. 
He always laid in front of the people this powerful thing. And then again, in spite of the weaknesses that Martin Luther King Jr. might have had, he was constantly calling people to something greater through this idea of passive resistance. We're going to be good to others regardless of what they do to us. The mark of a follower of Jesus is this very thing. Regardless of how people come at us, Jesus said, if they slap you on one cheek, you turn them to the other. If they want your cloak, you give them your tunic. It's just this path of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. So he just says to them, look, what I want you to do is I want you to do what is good and to be zealous for it. Now that's all fine and dandy, but what do you do though if this particular person or people Still, it doesn't work. Now, what he's going to add to that, if you look in verse 14, he's going to say, but even if. Now, Peter is the classic example of how to go, yeah, yeah, I know what now you're thinking. But he's going to twist the corner and go, but there's a chance this happens. Now, let me answer this for you. If perchance this were to happen, even if it were to happen to you, I want you to suffer. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, here's his word, you will be blessed. Now, this is the thing that MLK learned as he taught people is that sometimes you can't avoid it. Now, when I look across just the gamut of things that are going on right now, just in the United States, I believe the church is being called to stand in a powerful way against things that, that in a unique way are offensive to God. We've been standing against it since the 60s, or the 70s, excuse me, in regards to something like abortion. The church has stood there. No, it is wrong to kill somebody inside of the womb of their mom. That's just not a pile of flesh. That is a real human being created in the image of God. And so we're gonna take a stand in that way, and we have now felt the impact and the pressure of what it means to stand against that. There's all kinds of other issues, though, that are hitting us. We've taken stands in regards to how people were treated. We've taken stands in regards to just even social issues, not in an arrogant way, hopefully, and not in an angry way, not in a bitter way, not in a frustrated way, not in a vengeful way. But the bottom line is, and when we get back to the book of Revelation, we are going to be called to take stands. Peter's saying, look, if by chance this were happen, you were to walk down this path in such a way that righteousness is be able to be brought to bear. Now we'd say, man, that kind of stinks as a path, and that's why I think he does this in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. He says, for this you've been called. Look at this. This is actually a call. Our calling is not strange, chapter 4, verse 12. It is something we've been called to. Why, Peter? Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you examples so that you might follow in his steps. I bet most of you didn't realize this, but when you came to know Jesus Christ, you were being beckoned not just to the new life that Jesus offers through his death, burial, and resurrection, but now to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in his steps. So I want you to do this. Now watch how he says this in verse 22. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found of his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's the kicker in which we're going to try to build on as we go along. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's huge. I think so often we feel when people have wronged us that they're going to get away with it. 
I see it inside of marriage counseling. I see it inside of friendships. And I see it in this world. We can't let people get away with this. It frustrates us. It annoys us. We start to become bitter when we feel like somebody is getting away with it. But his point being here that Jesus exercised this reality that no one gets away with anything. I can now entrust these things to God. Yeah, but you don't understand, Todd. You don't understand my my wife or my husband. I feel like they're getting away with it. No, they're not. I feel like my boss is getting away with degrading me and, and not somehow seeing the value of my work. No, he's not. But don't you feel like the government is just getting away with it? That's a big thing, government. We always just have this feeling that people are getting away with it. But in the end, we as Christians not only walk down this path, but the reason that we walk with this joy, the reason we walk in this particular case in hope is because we've entrusted ourselves to God knowing that in the very end, our God figures everything out. Everything. I think that's why when you come to Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, this is where he brings up this idea of blessing that we see in 1 Peter. He says, look, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for, for doing the right thing, for engaging what God's called us to do, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And here's, his, here's the word. Rejoice and be glad. Blessed are you. What? Why? For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Every time that we choose not to take out vengeance, every time instead we get to a place of trust in God and we see this as an opportunity now to engage in what God's called us to do, not going down this other path, his point is is that in that you can be promised there's a reward to come to you. Now I think the idea of future rewards is really hard in a self-gratification culture. In my house this week, we, uh, we had some sweets And we were kept telling the kids, you need to be patient. We're going to eat those things. Chill. Trust us. There's a reward at the end of this. I'm not going to tell you which children did this. But two of my children decided that it was better to get the reward now than later. And because my wife is in the house, no one gets away with it. We have microwaves that go a million miles an hour. Why? Because we want it now. I was on the internet the other day. Some of you are old, you know, you remember this. Remember when AOL first came, you know, and nobody got antsy, you know, and you're sitting there waiting for finally the internet to come in. You click on something, you wait five minutes, you click on something and wait five minutes. So this week, my internet was slow and I'm like, what's going on? What's happening? We should have instant access. What's happening to me? Why? Because we live, it's hard in an instant gratification culture. But God's economy says, be patient. I have reward for you. It's worth it. One of the things that I feel like the church has to learn and learn it quickly, if that's weird in regards to patience, is how to be 
patient. I think we need to fill our minds with the reward of God. That's why we taught through the book of Revelation is that sometimes because we don't see this massive reward of God like it's conveyed inside of scripture, we so easily buy into the mud puddles of this world. We, we so easily buy into bitterness. We so easily buy into resentment. We so easily buy into vengeance because it's this quick thing. But yet God says, no, you walk the path of my son and just like my son who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Why? Because the cross was so wonderful? No, because he saw the other side. He says, trust me. But then there's a second thing in this that I think is so cool when you look at Matthew 5.12. Not only is this the path of Jesus, but when we walk this path, we become just like all of those who have ever gone before us. We become part of this long lineage of all these prophets that were bombarded by life, yet still stood in such a way that they stood for what is right, even in the midst of a culture that was telling them not to. One of my favorite stories is in the book of, of Daniel. I love to tell my kids this one about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Man, the fiery furnace. That's the goods as far as Bible stories go. But in that story, it's so powerful the way you see that Nebuchadnezzar has this golden image, the Chaldeans try to set up these Jewish men to somehow fail, who these men that had sought to do good, that in, in all kinds of ways that they had tried within their kingdom to be at peace and, and to cause the kingdom to flourish. But now all of a sudden they have to take their stand because they would not bow down. This is the long line of all these prophets that had come before. They would not bow down to where culture was moving. They took a stand. The king, obviously a little perturbed, and I, I'm going to paraphrase this. Do you know who I am? Do you get who I am? I know my name is funny, but I am Nebuchadnezzar. I am the king of this world in so many ways. Do you get who I am? Who is your God that you think he will deliver you? Now, what in the world caused these men to do this? We're going to look at it in here just a little bit, but watch what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, we're going to tell you something, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They took a stand. On this moment of taking a stand, suddenly though, they had to live with the consequences. They entered into the fire, and in entering into the fire, we know the way the story goes is that these men not only weren't burned, but the, the greater concept of it is they didn't even smell like smoke. Like, and I think sometimes we hear those stories and we're like, oh, that's so cute. Have you ever just thought about that? Three dudes enter into a fire and somehow there's this fourth one lingering in there, which, hmm, that's pretty interesting. And they come out and they're not singed in the least and they don't even smell of smoke. Now in this, I think what we're seeing is in 1 Peter 3, when you move along within 14, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Do you understand who your God is? 
It's David, right? Where another classic story where he comes up and Goliath is standing out there taunting everybody. And what does he look at the entire kingdom of Israel and say? Do you not know who our God is? See, this is one of the things that, again, that I feel like we have to get into cornerstone in a greater and a greater way and to say out over one another all the time, do you get who our God is? This is the beckoning call of these people and walking through this. And he says in there, do not fear, literally what it means, their fear. Fear they try to get you to fear. Have no fear of them. The opposite that he would say is, is instead, in light of who our God is, be courageous. Now here's the question. How did they do that? And how do we do that? In 1 Peter 3, 15 now, he's going to tell us this is how you do it. Here's what I think is the key to what I'm trying to say today. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I, I like the Net Bible a little bit better where it says this. But set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. He's saying in there, you don't focus on the persecution or the persecutor. You focus on Christ. This is huge in what he's trying to get people to understand is that when I'm focused on all these things going around on around me, I lose sight and I begin to cower and I fear. But if my eyes now all of a sudden go to where they're supposed to go towards Christ is that now everything begins to diminish as I begin to see the incredibleness of Christ. And so what do we see about it? When I look at Christ, I see God who's holy. I see a God who's sovereign over all things. I see a God who's glorious, who's majestic, who's immense. I see this God that now we are to fear him. Why? Because in fearing him, then we will fear nothing else. See, everybody always says, I wish I didn't fear more. Let me tell you this. Your fear always has to go somewhere. You will always fear something as a human being. And so therefore, don't fear people or persecution that might come upon you. Fear God. Now, in a lot of ways, we don't like that inside of our kind of Christianized culture. Where No, no, no. God is love. And so therefore, I'm not going to fear him in any kind of way. Really? The Bible says that God sits in unapproachable light. Anyone that's ever come face to face with the God of the universe doesn't sit there and go, oh, they fall. We've tried to make words like fears, you know, just reverence, awe. Oh. Yet everyone that comes in front of him, it is terror. We don't like that, I think, because we don't want to now in any way have to deal with what over and over humanity's had to deal with. To stand before that holy God, we have to recognize that we are sinners. We have to recognize who we are. But actually, I think the church is supposed to raise that up and come into an encounter with this large, majestic, immense, sovereign, and holy God because the more we see him for who he is and my fear begins to be directed towards him, I begin to fear things less and less and it almost becomes like it was when I was a little kid. I feared my dad incredibly. But I knew he loved me. I don't know how many of you grew up hearing this from your mom. Wait till your dad gets home. Those were magic words. 
I remember one time my, my mom telling me, you need to go to your room and you're going to wait for your dad to get home. And anybody that grew up at that time, now again, we're not supposed to do this anymore, but I grew up in the 70s where they had the big, gigantic, fat belts. And my dad was not afraid to use that thing. And so I sat up there knowing full well that my hiney was going to come into full contact with his belt. I sat in fear. He came, and I remember being disciplined, and I remember him hugging me and holding me. But you know those moments, though, when the other things you begin to fear, who did you run to? Dad. And my dad, in the back of my head, he, he was on the edge of the $6 million man. If you don't know who that is, ask your grandparents. <laughs> he was bionic. He was a cowboy, a rancher with a kung fu grip. And when I had a terrible dream, I didn't sit there in my bed. I went running into my dad's room. Why? Because I knew that he was the one to be feared above all. And as I came into a relationship with my father, I realized that it wasn't just a fear based out of anything, but kind of like in a 1 John 4.18 thing, as we draw near to God, actually perfect love cast out what? Fear. It's a fear that beckons us to him. It's a fear that I think in the end of it, it produces hope. You'll see this like in, in Romans 5, 1 through 2, where Paul's making this argument for how to go through. And he kind of first lays out there for them this idea of what it now means to set the Lord as, as holy or set apart as Lord in your hearts. And he says, look, therefore, since we've been justified by faith in coming to him through the work of Lord Jesus Christ, we're now good with God. He's created peace between me and God. You used to be at enmity, he's going to say later, but now we have peace with this God and through him. We've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that that fear might be something that's awful and terrible. But as you come in, you now see another side of God because of the work of Jesus. Nothing because you've done is that now you run into grace. Peter's saying, do you want to know what it means now to set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts? Run in there. Run in and see his magnificence and his holiness. Now watch what happens then after that. Now as suffering begins to hit, we can rejoice. Why? Because as suffering hits us and we take it head on, because this is what God's called us to do, we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, Christ-likeness, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because, now watch this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You can run into that fiery furnace no matter what it is, a difficult marriage, a difficult job, cancer, sickness, whatever's coming your way, you run into that particular reality and it seems counterintuitive, but when you get in there and you're with God, you find hope. Now, what does our world need more than anything? Hope. The question the church has to ask itself, let me, no, 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 let me, let me say it this way. The question Cornerstone has to ask itself, are we going to get such an enlarged vision of Jesus that we'll run into anything as the means of giving hope to our world? I mean, anything. I look around this room and I see a lot of you that have been asked to run into some difficult things. Loss of spouse, loss of child, all kinds of different things. 
But in each of those, we have to understand that God now is giving us this immense opportunity, an opportunity that maybe we didn't ask for, but it's an opportunity now to display who he is. That's what he's talking about when he gets into 1 Peter 2.9. This church now that proclaims the excellencies him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light is that now we can be a group of people that can find hope in the midst of all of it. And he says this statement because there's love. On one end, and I, there's a book, and I would highly encourage you to read it by Ed Welch in regards to fear is whatever we fear the most controls us and if it's God it's a phenomenal thing but fear is insufficient fear might control us but love urges us we've all in different ways maybe been in you know I don't know if band does it or singing does it but I know sports does it do you remember the coach that made you scared he had great fear and let me tell you something you were on your toes all the time or you come out of the game. But then there was those coaches that, yes, they still did instill a sense of fear, but they urged you. See, the reason I say it's insufficient is because when you come to like Matthew 22, 37 through 38, the great command of Jesus is not to you shall fear the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. No doubt that is a reality. We are to fear God in that way, but the call is now to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Fall in love with him. Uh, no, that's not really good for me, Todd. I don't fall in love with anything, except for my wife. Sounds a little weird. I'm not talking about puppy love. I'm talking about this love that in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I'm talking about that love that you have for your kiddos. There's at least three of them I would die for. The fourth is still up in the air. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> I love my kiddos. See, he calls us to this to help us to understand that in order to now become these people that set Christ apart as, as this Lord in our hearts, not only do we have to understand fear, but we've got to begin to understand love. It's a love that is passionate and deep and caring. Sometimes people say, you know, all love is is if you love God, Jesus, you will obey his commands. That's it. Missing the first part, if you love. I think we're supposed to have our emotions stirred for Jesus. I think we're supposed to look on him and gaze on his beauty, be blown away by him. Why? Because once you start to not only fear, but be drawn to him and see how beautiful he is, the urging that then begins to happen into your life truly begins to set apart God in your hearts and you will climb any mountain, cross any sea, do whatever it takes because you have fallen in love with the greatest treasure of all time, Jesus Christ himself. He said, do you want to set apart Jesus in your hearts? And not only is it fear, but now, no, it's falling in love with him. It's seeing him, being blown away by him, gazing at just the magnificence of he is, putting people around you that beckon you to it, that tell you stories of the greatness of Jesus. See, one of the goals of Sunday morning is not to give you messages that you leave here and go, oh, that was so nice. That Todd really made me just, he's so kind of smart. No. The goal of our gathering is to create that accurate picture of who God is and then run into him and fall in love with the God of the universe. If you're ever going to be a group of people that does not fear people, 
that does not fear circumstances. You have to fall in love with that one. Peter says, set him aside in your hearts. And what comes from it, he says, is now something that is so powerful. What comes from it is hope. See, there's a passage in Luke 7, and I'm just going to read this to you and kind of just walk it through of somebody that experienced this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Do you think she's afraid? No. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, sounds like sometimes inside of churches, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. <laughs> a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, and oh my gosh, to be there. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Look at this. For she loved much, but he who's forgiven little loves little. How is it that I set apart Christ as Lord in my heart and I get to know that Jesus? Your job as followers of Jesus Christ is to know that Jesus. Now, is it just to know him for knowing's sake so that we can somehow just survive in this world? Is, is this what God's trying to tell us? Is that somehow I hope you just kind of make through it? I think it's so much more. We see in there that this happens. Now, watch this in the next section. Off of that now, always, and the word being is actually not in the Greek, so let me just take it out for a second. In this moment, there's a reason for which I'm doing this, Christ says. There's a reason for which now you are making me now Lord in your hearts. Because you need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. See, this is what I mean. It's not just survival. I feel like so often the way the church views itself is, oh, I can just hope we survive until Jesus Christ returns. We're not in survival mode. That's baloney. We are surviving as the opportunity to convey a message, not to those who persecute us now as enemies and ones that we want to war with and become vengeful over. We now do this in such a way so that we can win them over with hope. We walk through these things that we walk through like Jesus walked through. We take any path that God gives us, not because we're masochists and not because God is a sadist. We walk these paths because there is no doubt to watch somebody walk a difficult path and still leave with hope. We're going to ask a question. Tell me about the hope that's inside of you. You can't not ask that question. 
And then as they ask the question for the hope that is within you, they will encounter not you, but the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us in here today have opportunity. I do not want to pastor a church that survives. I don't. I don't want to shepherd a church where we just come in here to our little gaggly group and we say, oh my gosh, I just want to be in here because I don't want to go out to that world out there. I want to be in a church that says I want to come together because I need strength because that world out there needs hope. A world that needs to be bombarded with the greatest message ever of Jesus Christ. We have the message. We have the answer that this world is dying for and craving for. They might have to persecute us to get the answer. They might have to watch us walk down some difficult paths to be able to get that answer. But how God's people walk down that path now becomes the means of the defense. Because see, they can't deny it. And in a unique way now, they have to listen to you. They want to know what's going on inside of you. And as they learn about what's going on inside of you, they don't encounter now you. They begin to encounter Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. This is what Peter's after. And this is where I'm after in these next few weeks. Daniel, after everything had taken place and Nebuchadnezzar had seen them come out of it, watch this. He said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's cool. He doesn't come out and go, wow, must have to light that part of the fire a little higher. He comes out and he says, blessed be this God who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. It's an interesting way of going about it. For there is no other God who is able to rescue this way. Let me just say this. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Government can't save you, in case you haven't learned that yet. Spouses can't save you. Jobs can't save you. Nothing can rescue you, but I'm here based on the authority of God's word that we stand in this place, that we have a God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the question I have is this, are you ready to witness? This, this is a totally just sit there and listen and think for a little bit. Don't respond. Do you want to walk in a long line of godly men and women that have been a witness? Do you want to be a part of the greatest thing ever that got stirred in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? And when I say that, just understand, to walk this path as a witness means you will walk the path that Jesus walked. It won't be easy. He said this way that he, he's walking down is narrow and few are those who find it. But as they find it, we know at the end of this way is life like we've never known it. 
As we go through this particular series, that's what we're going to do. Christian's going to do it, and and Terry's going to be engaged in this, and Chris is going to be engaged in this, and we're going to hopefully begin to just stir not only your desire to witness, but hopefully more than anything, we're going to stir within you the greatness and the goodness and the magnificence and the hugeness of God and allow you now to become enamored and fall in love with him so that you can't help, no matter what you go through, to begin to spill out to the world. Let me tell you about the hope that is within me. So for these next seven weeks, I invite you to come and encounter the God of his word so that you might leave as a testimony and a witness that's spoken about revelation to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. Father, thank you so much for today. Would you be honored by your word? Would Cornerstone leave more passionate, more fearful, but more longing and loving for Jesus? In your precious name we pray, amen.